and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel Kadlech. This podcast is brought to you by Hawking Dynamics, the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking Dynamics takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customizable cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. The technology is constantly evolving, much like an app update for your iPhone. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better. In addition to all of that, they also offer some of the most competitive prices for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system. So, if you want to find out more, check out their easy intro to force plate section at www.hawkingdynamics.com forward slash blog. So, without further ado, it's time to welcome Daniel onto the show. So, Daniel, welcome to the Science Sport Podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be a good fun. Uh, I've I've got a questions here. I've got a title, and I'm uh, I'm super excited for this one. So, can you give us a quick, short, sharp introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Sure thing. So, Daniel Kedlich. Born and raised in Germany, where I was working in the private sector with team sports and with Olympic athletes for about seven years before I got the opportunity to move to Perth, Australia and start pursuing my PhD with Sophia Nymphius as my supervisor. I'm now here for almost three years. And during that time, I was or kind of still am coaching the women's state softball team and the Aussie rules football women's team Clermont. So that's what I'm up right now. Cool. And uh, PhD-wise, what's uh, what's your rough title? Uh, we are checking kind of like movement strategies of individual athletes and if we can kind of cluster them into joint dominances. And then if we know, okay, this is kind of like your strong joint or your overused joint, then uh, we can kind of provide interventions to lift the capacity of the weak joint or the weak link which the athlete might or might not use eventually in a game. So we kind of like want them to prep them for worst case scenarios in order to not suffer injuries, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, that's going to be some really interesting research and uh, I look forward to reading it when it's all uh, done and dusted. But oh. importantly, uh, we could do a whole podcast on your on your research, of course, but we're here to discuss <laughs> how people are going to develop their bullshit meter because social media is absolutely full of rubbish. Um, to the point where people are, yeah, tired of it. I'm tired of, uh, of half the crap that I see on there. Um, and I try to minimize some of my use of it because of that. So, um, first things first, why is it important to read research critically? Well, first of all, we need access to papers to be able to read them and analyze them. Yet without having or being linked to university, it's painful to get papers. Luckily, there are ways how to deal with that. And <clears throat> science hub. <clears throat> sorry, bad call. <laughs> a little tickly throw there, mate. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> anyway, I guess ultimately we want to improve how we train others. With the often limited time we have, we have to make sure the things we're doing are actually driving the adaptations we want. Yet, as you said, there's literally unlimited amounts of drills and exercises out there. And we can use research to back up our decision-making, whether or not to do certain things. However, and there comes the tricky part, if we assume that published studies will give us the unquestionable truth, we end up having an endless amount 
and in many parts contradicting amounts of information to consider when deciding what to do. And we end up being even more confused. At least that's how I felt when I started reading papers in order to improve my coaching. But at one point, I just got so frustrated and I'm not getting this clear black and white answer to all my coaching problems. And I just couldn't stand your typical it depends answer. While I had absolutely no clue about like the scientific stuff like methods, stats, reductionism. Also, like no one told me about the real world kind of issues like complex systems, uncertainty, variability, and what it all means. And all of this in combination with the published or perish nature of academia, it's then kind of made sense why I can't find my answers in PubMed and why one should always be critical when wanting to apply research in the real world. And I feel especially the combination of the published and perish nature of academia, where scientists are judged upon the quantity not necessarily the quality of the published papers and this reductionist thinking leads to huge numbers of not applicable papers which however lures us into a quote-unquote module thinking as in assuming we can pick and choose one certain feature of the human body train it overload it and therefore improve it and just put it back in the holistic system and then magically observe how your athletes get better and let me give you a couple of examples with that. Something catchy like, I don't know, like tendon stiffness, eccentric strength, cross extensor reflex, or another one, hip lock. That's a good one. Um, improving, like improving it in isolation and your athlete will get better. Sounds funny, yet that's how many authors do write their conclusions. I wish it would be that easy and simple. And I mean, we've all probably read the last Bosch book where he literally yells at us how stupid this reductionist thinking is in this first chapter. And yet this grumpy man has a point. <laughs> I mean, I mean, knowing and understanding those and other pitfalls in science, such as sample size and the specific of the tested population, publication bias, reproduction crisis, being aware of all of this just helps us coaches to understand how to find useful papers. However, not being aware of all of this and taking research results and applying them in the real world is probably just a very stupid idea. But again, trying to upskill yourself in all those areas is painfully boring and tedious. So yeah, I guess more questions than answers here. <laughs> I think there are a lot of questions, but there's some absolute gold in there as well. Um <laughs> So in terms of, in terms of summarizing that, um, what would you say the, are the key, uh, most important things for you then in terms of why you should be, uh, reading that research? Um, well, it gives me still like good arguments as in to like, to pick and choose certain methods or, or not to choose certain methods. And probably right now I'm more on the side of like, okay, I use evidence and literature mainly to justify things that I'm not doing and I'm not wasting my time with. So, yeah. 
I think that's excellent. I think that's a really, uh, a really interesting way of putting that into the context of what coaches actually do and need. Um, instead of, instead of looking at what well, science tells me that I should do five by five because that's what science says. Um, it's not realistic to do that. So I'm not going to do for a German volume training, for example, because of these studies, which say it's just too much. Um, I think that's a, a really nice way of looking at it. Um, can you give us some examples of what can happen when you fail to then read all this literature and analyze that critically? Well, probably one of the best examples, which is very close to me and the people that I work with, is how research in women is conducted, concluded and translated into practice. I mean, we all know about the huge injury burden in women in sports are facing with up to 10 times higher injury risks when compared to men. But where is this coming from? Well, according to most sports science papers, women are just built differently by nature, and therefore there is very little we can do about it. Just accept it. And with being built differently, it's often highlighted that differences in their anthropometrics exist, like, you know, your bad cue angle, wider hips, or your intracondylar notch width, additionally to the sinister and evil menstruation cycle. Oh, and of course, women do have vastly different movement strategy, which are risky as. Well, that's how most papers are concluded. But can it be? Is it really that bad? Well, if we start asking the right questions and being aware of what and who we are comparing, then all of those claims and quote-unquote evidence-based facts disappear. What I mean with that Usually we take a, like a group of women and men and just compare them how they move without even considering why they move the way they do, they do move. And more often than not, male athletes have not only way more exposure to sports specific training and SNC, but also the quality of coaching differs between males and female athletes, which then 100% explains the difference in movement and skill. So female athletes have less quantity and quality of training, and then we compare them to a population which has literally endless funding, access to appropriate support and whatnot, and then we draw conclusions? That's just not good enough. And ironically, if we compare humans by strength, not by gender, we see an even bigger difference in how we move. And we know strength is 100% trainable. Also, if we read the research more critically, we see that men and women have this same variability and anthropometrics. So blaming your cue angle is nothing but wrong. So what are we doing here? If we want to really to compare males and females, we have to account for training history, SNC experience, strength levels, and whatnot. If we don't do that, well, that's just ignorant and stupid. And practitioners end up doing endless amounts of, I don't know, you know, your mini band glute medius circuits because knee baggers instead of squatting and sprinting them and properly preparing them for worst case scenarios. But if we do match for all those factors, we see exactly one thing, no difference at all. But in order to do that, we need to ask the system to change, which costs a lot of money. Therefore, it's easier and cheaper to blame biology and rather hide and neglect the apparent lack of opportunity. So, okay. Rant over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, keep, keep coming with the rant. This podcast is also brought to you by Flex. Flex is the latest product to enter the velocity-based training market developed by the team at Gymware. 
Flex is the only laser-based training system available, and it's this unique technology that makes Flex the most accurate and reliable barbell tracking product in the sub-500 US dollar category. It's wireless, portable, and it's super user-friendly. Find out why VBT is such a powerful training method and what separates Flex from the competition at flexstronger.com. So what questions do we then need to ask to be able to analyze critically? Well, I think it would be way easier if academia starts to ask more meaningful and applicable research questions in the first place and then also convey them in a language everybody can understand without having a postgraduate degree necessarily. I mean, how hard is it to read a full paper anyway? Not that it's necessary or needed to go through the whole paper to get to the point, but it's such a tedious and painful process more often than not. And with that, I don't think it's going to get any easier to be able to critically analyze studies as technology and therefore methods and stats are exponentially getting more and more sophisticated and without a deep understanding what's actually going on, aka having skin in the game in academia and research. I don't think it's possible for coaches to determine how to use the new insights. I mean, things like machine learning, AI, neural networks, this stuff is already here. Yet most of us still don't understand p-values. Well, at least this stuff becomes more important if we start to read outside of JSCR, where the good stuff is. But on the bright side, I don't think we need science to tell us what to do. Because I feel that all meaningful coaching questions have already been answered by decades of tinkering and trial and error by smart coaches. I don't think that we're going to find any new game changer or magic bullet anymore in this industry, as we already have enough know-how. We know how to get stronger. We know how to get faster and fitter. The next step where research can help us is getting more insights into the know why, why to choose or not to choose certain methods for the individual athlete in front of me. So more towards individualization. And that's why we so desperately need good case studies in this field. So, yeah. So is that, is that then a move for science towards, uh, yeah, smaller numbers? in terms of their, their study groups, but potentially more different studies. So uh, when you look at an, an N equals one study with 20 rowers, for example, individually analyzing that data as opposed to as a group could be vastly different to the, the mean effects, for example. Oh, absolutely. Like still many good results and insights from research studies are just like hidden, um, are just hidden like, beneath the mean of the of the group and the standard deviation and without posting those individual data trends we don't know what's what's actually going on therefore i feel like if you if you're honest enough like you have to post the data points of all individual athletes in addition to your mean and standard deviation and stuff like that obviously but also if you want to pursue more the case study side of things we need need just to account for more and more co-founding variables to be able or to understand what's going on and like what's what's the what's the training history of the athlete and how do certain training intervention then then adapt yeah i think it's it's an interesting point because if we look at what coaches are doing 
uh, if you if you're a testing battery, for example, um, you're probably not going to go to the the technical or head coach and say, "Oh, look, the average uh, counter movement jump height was uh, 30 centimeters." Um, and then the co- head coach goes, "Oh, that's brilliant! I'm glad we've uh, we've improved this year." Well, that, that that doesn't really say what's happened. So that that's not not even representative of the real world um, as practitioners are using it. So it's yeah, when when you when you sit and think about it, it's kind of baffling that that's the data that we're using to inform our training decisions. When in actual fact, if you just reviewed your own training process, you're likely to get a better uh, idea of what's going on. Spot on. Um, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, one question which I wanted to ask earlier was over academic bias. Um, is, is there a bias in academia because of, uh, funding, but also because of positive results? So, for example, you mentioned, uh, the, the male versus female debate. Um, I can imagine that if there's no positive results out of something, then that gets shelved and, oh yeah, that didn't get accepted. It's not interesting for us. Um, is that something that you come up against when you're reading research? Maybe there's there's gaps in places where there should be information? Oh, absolutely. Like if we see or if you look at like look at summaries about like research and how the results are or in which way the results tend to be, like there is a abundance of positive results and significant results while I don't know, like the numbers of negative findings is something like 5% across all sciences, which just can't be true because there's at least as much things going on that are not significant or there were no surprise, surprising findings can be found as your significant findings. And for us coaches, it's at least as important to know and understand what stuff does not work and what stuff does work. So, yeah. I think that's, a, that's an important one leading us on to the next question, at least, um, which is how you then apply information and research articles into your practice. So how do you then, with your, your bullshit meter, you've come in, you've worked out <laughs> that methods might not be ideal um, and conclusions may or may not be erroneous. How do you then apply that into your practice? Probably adding to what I've said before that I'm not convinced that we'll find new and better methods than those that already worked like 50 years ago. So basically, I'm using evidence and science to tell me what not to do and not to waste my own athlete's time with. I mean, when was the last time you changed your coaching or your SNC approach after some new and trendy discovery? I mean, if we look at current happenings in sports science, like something like, I don't know, the Q to chronic workload ratio. I mean, how new or innovative is this whole idea and concept of progression? Or in other words, doing too much too soon is rather a stupid idea. And well, also like who knew that decomposing the complexity of fitness and fatigue into one single number just can't work. Mind-blowing. All things like here, velocity-based training, with about now like 389 papers showing that if you want to get stronger and more powerful, you rather want to stay away from fatigue and muscular failure. And if you want to build size and bulk up, you go all in. That's new? Really? Or another one, like how many different mechanical surrogate variables do we need to be able to say if someone sucks at acceleration or at max velocity when profiling them? But... 
and here comes the bot like unfortunately we know that all things are subject to interpretation and this interpretation is a function of power or popularity or follower and not the objective truth so yeah i just wonder how much better our coaching is with all those quote-unquote evidence-based practices now when highlighting that the world record in all jumping events is about 25 to 30 years old where is your evolution here I think that's a very good point. Although maybe 25, 30 years ago, they might have been uh, using some extra additional help, which might not have been tracked exactly how it might have been uh, these days. Although these days you might still get away with it. Um, but even so, um, it, it makes a very good point that even with all of the, the, the modern developments in coaching, it's not as if we're, we're changing human physiology every year with uh, velocity based training, for example. Humans stay the same. And when you get a genetic freak, absolutely fantastic. Nice one. Um, as long as you don't break them, they're probably going to do pretty well. <clears throat> so, uh, fully agree. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, uh, just to conclude, I want to ask you the most difficult question that we can imagine. Um, and that is, what is the one thing that you see or do differently to the rest of the world? I rather look in the past to inform my decision-making than in the future. What I mean with that, I think we've, we've all seen like on YouTube, the old training videos of Werner, Werner Günther, like the shot putter, where he's like jumping across the gym and like, moving weights around and i think like as long as we're working with sports or with athletes that are moving on two legs doing nothing but all those exercises we see in this video which is like 30 or 40 years ago we at least do nothing wrong in our programming so basically that's uh breaking breaking training down into its uh, simplest components, the things that really will make a difference and getting rid of all of the rest of the shit. Exactly. Like also like the, this mindset or this idea about like chasing the one percenters and trying to fight the extra nudge to like improve performance. I feel this is such a stupid idea because the moment you focus on the one percenters and trying to like understand how to implement them in your training, you will inevitably fail to optimize your 99 percenters, your basics, your traditional methods that all that always worked, still are working and always will be working. So, yeah, I'm not a fan, not at all. I think that's uh, an excellent way to conclude. So, Daniel, massive thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our free-to-download Agility mini course. That is around two hours of fantastic content broken down into mini bite-sized chunks, which you can fit in and around your busy coaching week. So if you're interested in making sure your agility training is up to par, be sure to download that one for free in the show notes in just a few seconds' time. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button on whichever sender you're listening to. That means you won't miss out on next week's fantastic episode. So that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.